All right, here we go, everybody. Episode number four, Sports Cards Live. Happy to have you all here. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Really happy with the guest that I have tonight, a friend of mine in the hobby, gentleman by the name of Todd Poland, who is a super high-end collector, somebody who's been a big force in the driving the values of many high-end cards along the way. But before we bring Todd out, I'm just going to uh, go through a little bit of housekeeping with y'all. So um, I want to, I want to, of course, thank Carvin for joining me the other day. I want to thank uh, Sean Math for joining me the other day, other day as well. Um, I want to let you guys know about a few upcoming episodes coming. So lucky enough today to get confirmation from Dr. Brian Price, owner of President's Choice Trading Cards, hit prior of In the Game. He worked with ProSet, Parkhurst, uh, among others. Tons and tons of experience in the hobby. Dr. Price will be joining me here on May the 23rd. Um, also want to let you know that um, we're also having on May 2nd, Chris Carlin from Upper Deck and Steve Menzi, the owner of the Expo will be joining me where we're going to talk about the state of the hobby with COVID-19 and all of that. So that's pretty exciting. I also need to do uh, the, the giveaway that uh, Wayne Fraser from Doug Laurie Sports Cards offered, the Leon Dreisaitl SP, uh, SP Authentic Limited Autograph. He's been, uh, he was generous enough to give that away to, for us here. So I've got a list of everybody who was eligible to enter, anyone who left a comment on one of the YouTube videos so far. So thanks everyone who did that. I think we've got about 20 entries into that. So I'll do that shortly. Um, and I want to also ask everybody, please do um, subscribe to the YouTube channel and also uh, make sure that you go to, if you haven't yet, go to streamyard.com, look at the bottom there streamyard.com slash Facebook and click the big blue button. That way you can leave comments and we can interact with you tonight and, and on any show moving forward. So let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, and do the Leon Dreisaitl giveaway. So I'm going to try it the first time ever on Sports Cards Live. I'm going to share my screen with you and show you what uh, we're going to quickly do that. And then whoever the winner is, we will be in touch. So I'm going to try this share screen and see how this works quickly. So there we go, share. All right, so those are the people who have entered. And we're going to go to, so everyone everyone there has a, sorry, everyone there has a number. I've got you all written down there. So whatever row you're in, there are 21 entrants into this right now. So I'm going to go to random.org. We're going to pick a random number out of 21 and gonna hit it one time. Winner uh, will be the person whose number shows up there. So let's do that real quick, generate. Number one, number one is the winner and number one is Rod Booth. Rod, congratulations. Thank you for uh, leaving a comment on one of the Facebook videos. Guys, we're gonna do more of these as time goes by. So um, in the meantime, let me unshare screen. And uh, okay. That's out of the way. Thanks again, Wayne and Doug Laurie Sports Cards for the giveaway. Really appreciate that, guys. I'm going to bring out now a good friend of mine, Todd Poland. Many of you know him. Some of you don't. But let's bring him on. And let's do it like this. There we go. All right. So everybody, Todd Poland. Todd, thank you so much for joining me. Usually we're sitting in the room you're in right now in your basement. We're hanging out. We do that quite regularly. Um, it, it's fun to do this. We haven't seen each other in person since COVID. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for doing this with me tonight. Uh, I appreciate it, Jeremy. I, it's, uh, I'm excited to be here, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. 
Yeah, man, for sure, for sure. So listen, I mean, you're a guy who collects high-end cards. You've driven the value of cup patches, RPAs for a long time. Um, uh, you know, we're going to get into your head a little bit in that. Uh, but let's just, I just want to let the, the audience know, you know, so Todd and I, we met probably in about 2004 at when? When did we meet? 2000, what year do you think it was? Probably 2002, I think. Okay, that far back. So we probably met in yeah. It was when the it was when the cards that were hot were the uh, the upper deck premier RPAs, the Spezzas, the Nashes, the Stalls, the Flurries, those guys. And we met at Maple Leaf Sports, one of the shops here in Calgary. I remember uh, we walked in, and Darren said to me, "Oh, Jeremy, here's a guy you might like. You guys tend to collect a lot of the same stuff." And so we hit it off. We became buddies. I remember when you had your son. Probably um, how old's Braden now? He's got to be. He's ten. Ten. 10. So I remember when you had your son 10 years ago and I brought a present over to your house. I mean, so we go way back. We're good buddies. And um, it's just really nice to have you here today. But why don't you kick it off and tell us a little bit about yourself, your history in the hobby. And like I said earlier, kind of what are some of the early memories you have of first getting into cards and what what really drew you to them in the first place? Um, well, you know, I've collected hockey cards all my life. I played hockey as a kid and I remember shoveling a lot of walks and mowing a lot of lawns and then going to the corner store uh buying packs of opichi for 50 cents a pack those were the good old days um and collecting 500 card sets and and that was the thing and you know the the hardest cards to find were usually the no names and you always had to trade up for those guys so i've collected hockey cards for my entire life but uh i i largely got out of it for about a decade and in about 2002 I was uh, at a local strip mall here in Calgary and I w walked in to, to go to the Safeway actually. And they had a, a card show going on in the middle of the mall. It was, uh, it was down in, it was mid mall actually. And uh, they had uh, a massive show going on and I thought, oh, this is kind of neat. I'll, I'll, you know, peruse what they've got. And, and I looked around and instantly I was rehooked into the hobby and, and they had, that's when they started coming out with cards that were, you know, a lot better than what they were in the nineties. The nineties cards were pretty basic. Um, so I was I was impressed. There was every card. There was a lot of jerseys and a lot of autographs, uh, and that really got me back in. And so I started collecting mostly low end. And I, I bought a, a lot of you know black diamond. It was the first set that I actually got back into was black diamond. Um, and so for the first year, I was really into that. Uh, but at the end of the year, the upper deck uh, people put out premiere for the first first time, and and I look at I don't even look at calendar years anymore. I always say it's the Rick Nash rookie year, or it was yeah. the you know, the, the Jason Spezza rookie year or, or the, you know, the Tavares rookie year. That's how I remember cards. And uh, it was the Rick, it was Rick Nash rookie year. And he was, he, nobody was hotter at the time. And his cards were on fire. And the premier Rick Nash auto rookie was, I mean, when I first saw this thing, it was like love at first sight. I'd never seen a card like that. Uh, it was limited to 99. It was number one in the Beckett hot list. Um, and it was, uh, man, it was just amazing. And that, that turned everything. I, I knew I had to have that set. It was, it was only like an eight card set back then. There wasn't many cards, so it was easy to get, but uh, they were all very expensive. And at that point in time, a $500 card was unheard of. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, you had to, you know, really take a leap of faith to buy these things. But that was when I first really got back into the hobby. Sure. So do you remember, do you remember when that Rick Nash card was on the cover of Beckett? I, I don't know. This must have been in 2003, maybe the end of 304. It was on the cover and the headline said, first hockey rookie card modern day to be worth more than $1,000. I believe it was the Nash. 
Do you, do you remember that? Or was it the Spezza? I forget which one it was. No, you're you bang remember? on. It, it was the Nash. It was. And uh, it, it did reach. It was the first card to reach. A I still have that Beckett, actually. I was yeah. the guy that bought that card to push the auction over a thousand bucks. I think it went for twelve hundred dollars. Um, yeah. I was I don't know what I was doing to be honest. That was crazy back. In the yeah, days. well, you know, you just you just got back in. You see all these cards; they look so cool. That's awesome. So you're you're a guy who's known by people who people who collect cup and people who bust cup. They know you, and they know that you know if you hit if you hit the nicest patch possible, you're probably going to sell it to Todd. I want to get into your head a little bit here. What is it that first, like, when did you first realize that, number one, I want to have the nicest patch possible, and number two, like, like, why is it that the nicest patches are worth more than others? You know, that's a good question. Uh, originally, when I started buying the patch auto cards, the a, a one color was fine, and I don't think the hobby had really got to the point where the nicer the patch, the more colors, the more intricate, the logo patch versus the jersey patch. The hobby wasn't even there yet. And everybody was comfortable just getting a, a piece of jersey, whether, you know, one color or not. And so I, originally that's what everybody collected. But you started to see more uh, two and three and maybe even a four color piece of jersey or a piece of patch. And the hobby started to migrate to the fact that maybe not all cards were equal. And you noticed online and in the market um, cards that had that you know obviously looked a little bit nicer uh went for more value and and i think it's it's obvious why i mean they've got a lot more aesthetic appeal and uh that's essentially what you know what what changed it i i originally got into that high-end collecting the the best patch uh shortly after premiere came out I, I built my premiere set based on one color patches uh originally and i had to go back and update that later and, and upgrade it but um it it basically changed it didn't actually become a real thing until the cup came out in 2005. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I remember when we first met and uh, we actually, so we exchanged numbers and um, I remember I remember the first time that we actually got together outside of a card shop, I came over to your, your house and I brought over my premier rookie RPA collection and you had your premier RPA and we, we put them out there and I remember we were kind of going, okay, who's got the better Eric Stahl? Who's got the better Patrice Bergeron? Who's got the better Rick Nash? And, and you were you were big into upgrading at that point in time. So I, I even remember, I forget what card it was, but we did a trade where I traded you my inferior copy for, for no, I traded you my superior copy for your inferior copy and you gave me some money to top it up. Um, and that was my first real experience with somebody who's big into into upgrading cards. And I'll never forget that because it it was my first time realizing that, you know, there is a big value differential between, say, a, a three color and a four color or, you know, even where, where certain jerseys and especially in hockey where there's so many colors, like, you know, I think the most number of colors you can get on, a, on in any hockey card is seven for the Chicago Blackhawks. So the, the, the difference in price between a six color and a seven color can be quite substantial. And I didn't really realize that until that day at your house when you said you made me an offer. You're like, well, I'll give you my card and 300 bucks. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. I, I'm happy with the inferior <laughs> copy. And we did the deal and, you know, and, and, and that was just the, my introduction to, to that mindset of somebody who really, really strives to getting towards getting the best patch possible. So you, not only so you realize in around 0203 with the premieres, but then you really became a leader in terms of 
assembling a set, a full set, especially when the cup came out in 0506 and all of a sudden, instead of there being a handful of RPAs out of 99 or RPAs in the set altogether, now all of a sudden there's 60, 70, 80 RPAs in the whole set. That's a lot of cards to chase. What sort of strategies did you use uh, early on? And, and even if you can remember the question, how did that kind of evolve as the years went by? What sort of strategies and challenges uh, did you encounter in terms of building your sets along the way? You know, and, and just before I mentioned that, I, I remember that trade that you and I made. And when I first met you, you were the collector I wanted to be. You had the best rookies. Um, and I think you had a couple that were, I still own to this very day in that premiere set. So, um, but uh, I, I, when it, it became very obvious that the cards weren't all equal, um, even, you know, the cards of the same player were not equal and the market was starting to differentiate patches uh, and it really became obvious in 2005 I, I wanted the best patch of every player and my goal from day one was always to have the very best card for each player and uh, you know when the cup 05 uh, came out it was the biggest set we'd ever seen at the time and for patch autos and it was a little bit daunting uh, but I was basically going to a lot of local shows and, and uh, eBay was new to me at that time. And um, it wasn't a, a thing that I was very familiar with. So I did a lot of it locally. Uh, and I've got to tell you, I, I've probably rebuilt that 2005-06 set. I probably owned 10 to 15 copies of every player, uh, just constantly upgrading, constantly upgrading, getting a better patch, getting a better patch to finally getting what I thought was the best patch and settling on the set that I have now. But uh, it, it, man, I mean, it, it, it took a long time. I used to hit a lot of shows and then eBay became the big thing that it is today and it made it so much easier, but uh, it, it was exhausting. I, in those early days, I was on eBay hours and hours a day, just constantly searching for stuff um, because it was popping up and you had to grab it or it was gone. And, uh, and I think because of the hobby, it was very, that sort of patch auto trend was new. There were people that were listing cards that I was willing to pay a lot more for. Um, and they, they would put them on for, you know, buy it now for 50 bucks. And I, I couldn't understand how the, the card was listed so low. So back in the early days, there was value and you could find cards. And if you really did your homework, there was, you know, things to be had and, and things to be found. So it, it was a lot of local shows in the early days, but it's all it's all online now. Sure. Yeah. I, I you know, being someone that I deal with regularly, yeah. Uh, you speak about upgrading and the, the fact that you've probably gone through 15 copies of just about every cup rookie ever to come out. I can, I can attest to this because we, you've often sold me your under copies and th then I go to the expo cause you're not a, you're not a dealer. So I'll take your cards. I'll take the cards that I've acquired from you. I'll go to expo, put them in my showcase and they're all like top set patches and people would kind of look down at my showcase and they'd be like, wow, you have a lot of nice patches how do you get all these? Do you open, like, do you open all these packs? And I'm like, well, no, I actually don't. I, I do, I buy collections. I do this, this and that. And one of the things that has always sort of concerned me a little bit about that is that, you know, there is a, there is, and it, it sucks, but there, it, the fact of the matter is, is that there is a problem in the hobby with memorabilia cards. And that is the fact that people have found ways to take out that little piece of patch that might be one or two colors and insert back in there a three, four color patch and improve the, the aesthetics of the card and therefore yeah. increase the value of the card. Before you address your thoughts on the fake patch 
I've called it an epidemic in the past. I don't know how bad it is anymore, but I know that we do have guys that are constantly looking for them and they'll post them up on message boards, Hobby Insider, um, Twitter, wherever they post them. And they will do like alerts for people saying, hey, this is fake. Here's a before, here's an after. I have evidence that it's fake. Before you address that, let's just get, a, we have a couple of people in the room. Our buddy, Mike Davis, we both know says, hi guys, Mike, thanks for tuning in. Great to see you, buddy. Uh, Mike's a, a local, owns um, Eastridge Hobbies here in Calgary. So we both definitely know him. We got Josh is here. So fantastic to have some live hobby content. Really enjoying that. Thanks, Josh, for, for popping in. Reckless, evening, fellas, evening to you, evening to you as well. Who else is who else is around right now? My buddy, my buddy Ralphie, thanks again. You're welcome, buddy. Thanks for coming by. Andy's here. Thanks, Andy. We got Scott in the room. So interesting. 10 to 15 cards. Yeah, isn't that crazy? He you all, you know, you see a copy you like, you you, you have to replace it if the one if it's better than the one that you already have. Uh, who else is here? Where there we go. Yeah, Andy hasn't even considered the pot swatch. The patch swapping stuff. Well, Todd will get into that in a couple of minutes, Andy, and everyone can hear what he has to say. I just want to get through the comments because I really like that everyone gets involved. Uh, Jason says he very rarely buys patch cards for that reason. Todd, you may have some thoughts on that. And yes, Todd is a Turgeon collector, Richard. He is probably the biggest Turgeon collector that there is. All right, guys, thanks for the comments. Let's get back to Todd. Todd, fake patches. You are a guy who has obviously... And we've chatted before where you have even said to me, I know I have a fake patch in my collection somewhere. I must have some. They're, they, they're out there. I'm sure I've got one or two. What have you done to minimize the amount of fake patches in your collection? And what what, what are your thoughts on, on, on the whole problem with them, that the fact that they exist? You know, originally it was something that uh, fake patches were something that were first brought to my attention, not in 2005 or six. It was actually the next year. It was the Jonathan Taves rookie year. Um, when you started to notice people would actually post things on uh, social media boards where they said, hey, you know, I've seen this card before. It's the exact same serial number. But here was how here's what it looked like, you know, two months ago. And uh, it, it was it was shocking. It, it blew my mind that you could actually get that done without damaging the patch window. It was mind-blowing. And, and I think you and I, Jeremy, over the years, we've done a few studies where I remember you coming over. We've, we've taken some of the worst patch auto cards that I had, cards that were maybe $5 cards, and we've tried to take the patch out just to see if it would work. I was never able to do it successfully without damaging the window, uh, but there are people that have got this thing down to a fine science. And over the years, it got worse and worse. Um, one of the things in the early days that was a saving grace, and I would say in the golden years of the hobby, uh, to me, the golden years of the hobby have always been sort of that 2002, right till about 2009, maybe 2010 to the, the Tavares rookie year. Those were great years, and, and those were years that um, there was always, Upper Deck used to release a lot of the packout pictures, and I remember, Jeremy, yeah, in 2005 and 6, you started that website to look for fake patches in that 0506 cup year set. And, and that was massive. I mean, that was a game changer uh, because you could quickly go up and look and see what, what card it uh, was real and what card was not. And, and that's still up there today. And, and um, a couple of years later, Upper Deck uh, had you come down and, and photograph the whole set uh, for their pack out, which was amazing. So you get to see every card, whether it was a 90, uh, you know, out of 99 or if it was some lowly, you know, scrub uh, out of 249, they were all pictured. And so in the golden years, I was, I, Patch faking was an issue, and I, I, I've bought so many fake patches over the years. Uh, 
Um, I've tried to weed them out, obviously. And after the fact, you kind of find out, but um, it, it was, it, you were, you felt protected. There was a lot of people that were invested in trying to make sure that wasn't the case. And there was a lot of social media that was on that and, and a lot of websites uh, such as yours that I felt protected. But that kind of started to fall out as every year the cup kept producing another 80 to 100 card set. It got very difficult to maintain. And as you know, people come and go in the hobby. Um, it, it just sort of has fallen off a little bit. And I will say, uh, before I pass it back to you, the, I, I do think patch faking has slowed down. I, I do know that there's probably one individual. I'm not going to name names. Uh, a lot of people know who he is. He lives in Toronto. He's done probably 90% of the fake patches that have been made. Um, the guy's a, an absolute scientist. He's a crook, but the way he does it, uh, I mean, you can't tell these things are fake. You can't. They look absolutely pristine. I don't know if he's still doing it. It doesn't seem like uh, there's a lot of interest in doing that and maybe uh, the time or, or the money or whoever. I don't know what it is, but patch faking does seem to have subsided, but... Um, you know, it's uh, that's kind of how it uh, has unfolded. Yeah, you know, so I don't mind saying a name because um, it's a very well name, and I don't have a last name, but the the individual that you're referring to is often known as Kenny. There's this person named Kenny out there. I don't know him. I don't claim to have ever seen him, but everyone always says, "Oh, it's Patch Faker Kenny. It must be one of Kenny's creations." And there's probably more than one guy that figured out how to do it cleanly and and without leaving any remnants or, or evidence of tampering on the card i also want to say that, that just to go back to when you said that you know we've been together and actually tried to to do this we weren't trying just so everybody understands we weren't trying to to, yeah. to alter a card we were doing research we were trying to understand how do people do this so i've heard stories where they don't actually you know use tweezers and pull the patch out and stuff it back in i've heard that they heat the thing up and open it right up between the layers of cardboard and then put it back together i've never done it i don't know how they do it, but I do recognize it's a problem. And like you said, back in 2005, when the cup first came out, I I started I built an archive of images, and I did it by just taking by just capturing images from the internet, whether it was eBay, uh, Twitter, uh, you know, Hobby Insider, Sports Card Forum, wherever people were posting their pictures of cards back then. I was right clicking, saving as, and putting them in a folder. And by the end of the third year, so five, six, six, seven, seven, eight, I got a little exhausted by it. It was a lot of work always scouring the internet for these pictures. But what Absolutely. happened, you alluded to, was that, yeah, um, it was an issue. And I was really trying to find a way to do something about it. And I actually issued a challenge on, to Upper Deck. I said, hey, if, if you guys can't capture the images, I'll come down to your pack out and I will... I will come on my own time and my own dime and I will I will take pictures of all the patch cards. And they said, okay, they welcomed me down. And that's was really when I really got to know Carvin. I actually went down to South Carolina and um, went to the pack out, took a picture of everything. And even before I went, I bought a nice camera and I practiced and I made sure, you know, I had it all ready to go. And um, and unfortunately I, I did never go back and do it again, but it was, it was, a, it was an awesome experience. And, um, and it, gave me a bit of an insight into, you know, how the cup works. And I'll tell you, uh, unrelated to fake patches, but a cool story was at the end of the pack out, when I had been, I had finished taking pictures of all the patch cards and uh, the upper deck team was still hand packing the packs. I actually sat down and I started hand packing packs of the cup. And you were supposed to take one card from each box. So there were six boxes, you know, the single row boxes, you take one card from each pack from each box and one box was the pack hit 
And I remember because this was the end of the run. So I was actually seeking out the best cards and upgrading and taking two from the good pile and, and putting them in the box. And it was okay. Carbon <laughs> wasn't carbon, let it go. But, you know, it was kind of the end of the run. So in any event, um, you know, I also want to talk about your strategy to build the sets. You're somebody that, you know, when I'm at Expo and there's a good patch, you always say to me, I always say, to what, what should I look for you at Expo? You say, look, for just, you know what I like, Jerry, you know what I like. I like the, the sickest patches. Has that been a strategy that you've used? Have you had people out there kind of looking for cards for you so that you could, you could acquire them? And what value do you see in getting cards really early so that the patch fakers don't have time to acquire them, alter them and put them on eBay? You know what? That's that's an amazing question because uh, that's to me that's the best advice I can give collectors right now is that uh, it, if you can get most of the cards you want in the first month after release, you're probably ninety nine percent protected because there's no time for them to to turn that around. It's just too quick. Everyone's breaking packs, and I've always based on just rough math. I believe half the set gets cracked or half the, the run, usually the, the, the entire print run, half the print run gets cracked in the first two months. And, and, and you get this huge wave of cards and then it's sort of, you know, the other third or half or whatever it is, it's not a large amount, usually trickles out over time the next year or two. But I, I've always thought that the, the bulk of the set gets broken the first month or two. And that's when I actually built most of my sets was right out of the shoot. And, and uh, that helped protect me because I, I used to deal with the people that broke the cards. I would go to the hobby shops and people would break packs right in front of me or in front of the hobby shop owner. Um, and I knew I felt comfortable right then and, and I would buy cards. But um, so that that's kind of uh, to answer that question. I thought that was a, an excellent point. I, you know, on, on your question on how I built my sets, I, I'm a bit of a private, for anyone who knows me, I'm a bit of a private guy. I don't like advertising a lot of my sets or going out there and advertising what I have. And for the most part, in the early years, I used to just try to do it myself. And that's why I'd spend hours on eBay, far too much time, actually. I probably have a, a divorce uh, as a reason uh, because I spent a lot of time on eBay. But anyway, I, uh, it, was, it was all me. Uh, in the first year or two, I didn't know a lot of people and nobody knew me. Uh, so I had to do a lot of the homework. But over the years, um, I've had a ton of help. And, and it's just there's, there's far too many social media boards and and uh, like hobby insider and, and sports card forum i was never a member of sports card forum but a lot of great cards were posted there so uh, i've had a ton of help a lot of good buddies yourself uh probably first and foremost uh tony i've had a uh mike um you know max uh blair i've had a lot of friends that um have done a lot of work for me have found great cards that you know when they see them get broke they'll call me right away they'll take a picture with their phone and say hey this just came out of a pack are you interested and that's been, I mean, if I didn't have those people, I wouldn't have the sets uh, at the end of the day because I couldn't keep up. Sure. Fair enough. All right, cool. Uh, I'm going to go to a few more comments. So we'll just take, take a sip of water if you want to take a break. Barry, I'm back. Thanks for joining us today, Barry. Ralphie, yes, this is the legend. This is the guy that when I have nasty patches at Expo, I have acquired them from Todd. That is 100% correct. Todd, Ralph is a good buddy of mine uh, from Expo and Instagram and stuff like that. Sam. Glad to have you. Glad you're loving it. Right on, man. Thanks for coming out again. Um, someone else uh, didn't click the blue the blue button on StreamYard.com slash Facebook. So the person who talked about the hairdryer, please go to StreamYard.com slash Facebook. Click the big blue button, and then we'll, we can get your questions up there. Um, let's see. Uh, okay. So 
moving on a little bit. Um, where, you know, the market has evolved since you've been involved, since we've been involved, like since, since the beginning of RPAs and hockey. What is your current assessment of the market uh, values of cards? Where, where, how, where are we at in your mind? You know, it, it's interesting. I, um, I'll put this out. I'm a little embarrassed to say this. My, my career has been in investments. I manage money for large public, corpor uh, <laughs> public corporations and, and things like that. So my job has always been investments and, and sort of knowing the value and trying to find value and not overpaying for things. But when it came to cards, it, it was totally different. Cards are not an investment for me. And I know they are for some people. Um, people like to buy things when they're low, sell them when they're high. And that's a great thing. And that's probably a lot of, a lot of the people in the hobby. But to me, it was a hobby. And all hobbies have a cost. And I wanted to have the best cards. And, and there was always a premium to be paid for that. And so I, I, I crunched a couple numbers before I came on the show today, Jeremy. I probably, over the last 20 years, since Premier came out in 2002... I probably spent two and a half million dollars on cards, but my collection is not worth nearly that because over the years I've sort of, I've, you know, I've constantly upgraded and paid more and more to get these cards. And when you want that, that best card, you always pay a premium. You always pay top dollar. And so, you know, it's, I've, I've overpaid for all my cards. I know that I, I never care. It never bothered me. And so um, I remember there were years there where I was moving the market and things were basically being priced off of my stupid purchases yeah. um, where I, you know, there would be a no-name player, like a total no-name, a guy who may have played five games in the NHL. But I needed that card because it was an amazing patch and I needed it for my set. And I'd pay six or 700 bucks for that thing when his regular cards were going for $20. So I've, I've skewed the market a little bit and I have moved the market. And that was to my own detriment. And it was to my own, um, you know, I, financial uh, detriment at least. But yeah, and so, you know, the, the, I, I still, the hobby's in good shape. I, I don't think that uh, um, the money has gone, but the money has moved from complete, nobody does the sets anymore. And when the cup first came out, people were building the whole set and you were buying those no-name players. And that continued throughout the golden years for the next four or five years until people started to realize that there were a lot of cards in that 80-card checklist that, hmm, maybe you didn't want to own a couple of years later that were kind of worthless. And so I was the only guy buying a lot of that stuff for a number of years and uh, people have moved away. And I think a lot of the money now goes to just a few players. And so um, I, I think the hobby's in good shape, but I think it's different than what it is. Nobody collects the sets anymore. There are a handful of people that actually collect the sets and, and you know, nobody collects those scrub cards anymore. It just seems to be a, a market that um, people have moved away from completely in my eyes. Sure, I, I agree with that. Um, another story that, that uh, relates to a transaction that, that I was involved in with you. So this goes back to the, the 0910 Cup year, the Tavares year. And speaking about you kind of moving the market, I remember I went to the show and you said to me, if, if a nice Tavares comes out, if, if, and I, think, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember if Upper Deck actually teased a picture of all 99 of them or not. Yep. They may have. Did they? Yep. So you knew which card you were looking for, and you said to me, if you see this card there, you're probably not going to, but if you see it there, I'm going to give you, I'm going to approve up to, I, do you remember the amount of money that you approved me to spend on it? I do. I want to know if you remember. I, You know, I think my original number was three or $4,000, but I know I end up spending more than that. But yeah, four was, was my initial number. 
It was four. I remember you said to me, you can spend up to 4,000. Well, lo and behold, a dealer who was set up like right behind me starts busting a case of cup and pulls the card. And I see it and I'm like, oh my God, that, oh. Like, what, are, what are the chances? But before I knew it, he had agreed on a deal with somebody else in the room, another high-end cup patch collector for like $2,000 or $2,200 or something. And I said, and I said to them, I said to him, because I had said to him, talk to me before you move it. And then he goes and basically has a handshake on a deal. I went to him, I said, man, I was approved up to four grand for this card. Like, are you sure you want to sell it for that? And, you know, to the detriment of the other guy, we ended up getting the card. And I was like, you know, I felt bad for the other guy, but what are you going to do? I mean, money talks and it did in that situation and you wanted the card. And I kind of made sure that, that you got that card. Um, I think the number was four grand if I if I remember correctly. Uh, but I don't you know exactly it, what we what we finished the deal at. It may it may have been. But, you know, I have a I have a number in mind and I'll get to it in a sec. But I remember that you called me from the show. And you were you were so excited. I was at work and I'm thinking, what the hell is this guy doing? Call me now. And you were so excited and you sent me a picture of the card. And I, I you know, I, I blew my mind when I saw the card and I knew that that was the card I had to have. So I, I think because you tried to throw that number out there and I remember the collector that was going against us. I won't name names. He's a good guy, um, but he he actually met my offer. And I believe you guys had to go back and forth a little bit. I think I paid six grand for that card. Um, but but I don't remember. It's been a long time. But, I, you know, yeah, we that's did, over, we did that's a bit over 10 years ago now. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. That was a cool. great card. I still have that card. Yeah, that, that's a beauty. Okay, so a um, couple more comments here. Just to speak of the Rich says, UD did a good job of pictures on 15, 16, and 16, 17 cup out of 99. RPAs made it easy. Yeah, they, they they really did a good job putting that out there. I would like to see them do it for every patch card and every set, really. I'd like to see them all. So that just a, some sort of database or archive. I don't know if it's logistically possible, although I do know what it takes to capture images of a whole run of the cup. And I, I know that I photographed 28,000 cards over four days at the pack out in 2009. So I know it's possible, but I just don't know what else goes into it these days. Um, but how do you feel about when those pictures come out and they show all 99 of some of the players? I mean, I, I've got to definitely throw a, a feather in Upper Deck's cap. They've done a great job of photographing the 99s and, and they've always done the, you know, the really top end cards. Um, usually we get to see the full pack out. They'll show all 99 of them. Not always, and and some years they you know they're, they're better than others. Um, I, it boggles my mind personally with the technology we have today, uh, and the amount of money that collectors are willing to pay for these things that they wouldn't take the extra time to just do this. I mean, scanning technology—you can scan dozens of cards at once. They don't have to be one at a time, and and it's one of those things where I I just it, it blows my mind they don't do it for the entire set. Which I'll be honest with you, if they did. I think would draw more people back into the hobby and more money because patch faking has probably pushed people out of the cup. And uh, so to me, I, I don't understand it. I, I scratch my head, but they have done a very good job at, at taking a picture uh, of all the 99s for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. Since, you know, McDavid's rookie year, for example, we got to see all the McDavid's and, and that sort of thing. I, I've been pretty happy with that because those were the big, big cards and the ones where you were spending the most money on. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they've done a good job with that. I, I'd sure like to see it expanded, but you know, it is what it is for now. So um, uh, that's that. Um, okay, next quest, next comment here. Just got to find my way back. 
Al says, thankfully, there's a group of people who alert us to new EBIDs for some of the high-end patch fakers. And that's true. They're, uh, Matt, you know, Max is a good guy uh, at that. If anyone knows Max, he he's on uh, various message boards as I think, what is he, Gretzky cards or no? Uh, that, Carrera, Carrera GT. Oh, is that, is that what uh, You know what? I don't even know anything. I'm not sure. Yeah, but, you know, they're, they're, he's a guy that is out there really looking for patch fakers. He's getting their eBay IDs. He's sharing them with the, with the people that are potentially going to buy these cards. So that's pretty awesome. You know, I do want to mention one thing also that I, I have spoken to Upper Deck about why they don't do it. And one of the reasons I believe that I've been told is that they want to minimize how much they're actually handling the cards. And by doing those scans could add some more handling and could add a bit of damage to the cards. So I think as, as collectors, we almost need to decide what do we prefer, an untouched card or, or a, an archived card? Anyway, we can leave it at that. I think that's uh, for, for, for the higher ups to kind of uh, d decide how they want to move forward with that. Um, Patrick has a question here. Why on earth would the card companies not use construction adhesive to secure the patch to the window so it's impossible exactly. to remove? You know, I think that thought about that before. I think that's a great idea. But you know what? I, I and I'm not in the printing business. But the only reason why would be some because something may not be compatible materials, some sort of corrosives. Um, I, I have no idea. But there could be something. Uh, there could be something to that. Um, <clears throat> let's see what else we got here. We have lots of comments, guys. I apologize if I'm missing any of your comments. I'm kind of a behind in in looking at them here, so I'm just going to skip through. Hello to everybody who's here. Thank you so much. Nick, don't worry, Nick. Thank you for this StreamYard approval. It's good to have you in the room. Thanks for showing up, buddy. Uh, anytime I lose out last second, I think I, I, yeah, that's a good, this is a funny comment. You know, anytime I lose out last second in an auction, I think you're talking about when you get sniped. I, I think I'd pay double to have, to have won that. Like, why don't you speak to that, Todd? Because you're somebody, I'm going to go back to before I knew you. And I used to, I, we were competing for the same cards. I'm talking about 2002, 2003, 2004, up until Cup and even maybe afterwards. But I remember I would be ready to snipe a card at the last second. I'd put in my bid and I'd get that automatic, you've been outbid. And then I'd see who the winner was. And it was always, can I say your user? Can I say your eBay name? Yeah, sure. Scandals8HLX. I'm like, who the, who is this Scandals guy that's winning every card on eBay that I want to buy? So what, in terms of, why don't you speak to that a bit about like winning, what is, what was your bidding strategy to win cards? If you want to share, this sure. might be your Intel. So. No, and I've changed my, what I've collected a little bit. We can talk about that. I, I don't do the, the cup sets anymore. I, I quit doing that as of one year ago. Uh, and I can get into that later for, for reasons why I, I, I still collect, but it's just not something that's up my alley. But, um, when I first started buying the nice patches into you know oh five oh six and and the uh, the Jonathan Taves rookie year, I used to get beat for cards all the time, and I because I had a price in mind that I was comfortable paying, and the market was still kind of feeling itself out back then. They didn't really know what cards were going for, and sometimes a a, a per, you know a, a particular player collector that really wanted that card as well. I used to get beat all the time, and it drove me insane. Um, so I came up with a different strategy. I used to try to snipe with a few seconds left, throw in my best bid and, and hope for the best. And most of the time it worked because I was willing to overpay, but I did get beat on a lot of cards and, uh, that changed. I, I changed my strategy to, uh, if I really, really wanted that card and I knew it was a, a top patch, I would grossly overpay for it. And I would throw in my bid a, with 
eight hours in advance. And I would put my top bid out there. And, and I knew that if someone was going to beat me on that bid, they really wanted that card. And I didn't want to pay that much anyway, even though it was a gross overpayment. And I would let it go. And I would have peace of mind with that. So I would put my top bid in right away with hours to go. And I just, you know, walk away from it. And uh, eventually I used to, I'd win every auction. I'd win every auction. And most of that had to do with the fact that my prices came way up and I would, you know, overpay for a lot of things. But um, it, yeah, it was just, uh, I used to get beat all the time and it drove me nuts. So it's, it's one of those things that I, I had a new strategy and I grossly overpaid for a lot of things. Well, you know what, if you want something and you're willing to pay all the power to you, right? No one, anyone has any comments on that, 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 thinks that's not reasonable or, or unfair or uh, what's this guy doing? You know what? We're all entitled to do what we want with our money. And, and uh, you're, you're a lover of the hobby. You're, you're, a, you're a certainly a passionate collector. I know that firsthand probably better than anybody else does about you. So um, I don't see a problem with it at all. Um, Can I just add to that quickly? Sorry. Yeah, no, I'll go back. Yeah. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say on that point, I've never been a hoarder. So if I bought a card and I paid, you know, if it was some no-name cup rookie and uh, I beat someone on it and, you know, they were upset, I always let the, the copy that I currently owned go. So I never had, usually never had doubles of cards. I never had triples. I never had, you know, I didn't hoard cards. I just wanted that top patch. And so I'd always let my other copy go. And so you'd always see if I bought a card within a few weeks, my, my other copy was online for sale. And right. so I've never tried to take things away from people or, or corner a market or hoard the market or be that guy. Um, it's a, it's a small hobby. It's a very small hobby. And a lot of people, everybody knows everybody for the most part. And uh, you know, you can't burn bridges in this hobby cause it'll come back on you. And so I've always tried to have fair dealings and I've never tried to corner the market or anything like that and, and be that guy. Cause I, you know, there's room for all of us at the end of the day. No, yeah. You, I can, I can vouch for you on that. You're, you're a true collector. I've, I've, seen your collection many times you're you just want your set you want the nicest set possible and that makes you happy okay we got a question from our buddy mike other than the cup sets what is your favorite set that you have built good question uh good to see you there mike by the way uh long time no see i'll have to come in when covid's all done um honestly my my two favorite sets of all time uh they're not even it's i would like to say 0506 it's it's very near and dear to my heart but believe it or not, my favorite uh, card set of all time uh, was uh, 2013 14 National Treasures, Panini National Treasures. And the reason I like it so much is they did a whole set where all of the rookies were out of 99, not just a handful. And then the rest of them were out of 249. The whole set was out of 99. The patch windows were the biggest I've ever seen. Um, the cards were absolutely amazing. They were acetate, they were. Uh, before that was a common thing they were some of the first acetate cards that we'd seen so they just look beautiful and to me that's the best set that's ever been made um and, and you know what I, I it's a it's a shame they lost their license i we can discuss why but i, I know that they kind of watered some of the market down a little bit and, and collectors moved away but man i uh that 13 14 year which was a big rookie year nathan mckinnon uh sean monahan like there was probably a dozen uh you know future hall of famers from that one year and it was because it was a double year uh wasn't it because there was no cup uh there no i don't know if there was a set the year before there was a lockout something maybe i'm thinking of the wrong year but there was, the year before was the shortened season uh set i believe and but yes. the top out of 99s were like sven berici and Jaden schwartz yes yes much lower caliber uh year the year before um 
I actually thought you were going to say a different set. That one took me for a loop. I thought you were going to say the um, 0001 Pacific Titanium set. Oh, that's up there as well. That's up there as well. And that was the original jersey numbered set. And, I, you know, they they really came up with an idea there that no one had ever seen. They numbered all the rookies to the player's jersey number. And you could only build, there was only one possible set to be completed because Ty Conklin was one of one. Uh, and that card I didn't get. Um, that is a, that is one of my top favorite, you know, sets of all time for sure. Uh, but I, I love the patch autos and uh, Panini National Treasures was just crushing it. Do you have the Ty Conklin titanium rookie? You know, it's a weird story. I don't. I did at the time I was into building that set and I actually bid on the card. I remember seeing the auction come up and I bid on the card. I didn't win it. I bid, a, I bid like 1200 bucks for the thing, which I thought was going to get it. Um, it, it ended up going for $2,000. It went to a guy in New York City whose user ID never bought hockey cards before, never bought hockey cards after, and hasn't bought anything on eBay since. Basically a one-off. And we've never seen the card since. And it, it just boggles my mind. That's, that's, that is that's uh, pretty great. Who are the best uh, rookies in that set? Is, is that the Datsuk uh, Kovalchuk year? It is Datsuk. Um, I've, I've got a few of those. I didn't bring any of those to show. But yeah, Datsuk was out of 13. Kovalchuk was out of 17. Those cards are impossible to find. Like I, I went through, I actually cracked 20, um, I would say 20 flats over the last 20 years. And I mean by flat, there's a 20, there's 20 cases to a flat. I've probably cracked 20 flats of Pacific titanium from that year just to build that set. I went crazy. I would buy up product from Atlanta and Seattle and California and um, clean out hobby stores for that stuff. I, I only pulled a handful of those rookies myself in all of that. It was crazy. And I never I never pulled a Datsuk or a Kovalchuk. I had to buy them in the market. Yeah, they were tough. The, the, it, pulling those rookies were tough to find. And lo and behold, that Ty Conklin was sitting on the shelf at Superstar Sports Cards in Winnipeg, Manitoba, oh. when someone pulled it and listed it. And that, I mean, I'm from Winnipeg originally. I wonder how many times I when I've gone back home to visit family, and I go visit that store. I wonder how many times I saw that box sitting up in the corner and I didn't buy it. All right, I'm gonna go through a few more comments here while we gather ourselves. Um, Andy, yeah, set collectors are almost extinct. Now it's key rookies. I agree. And you know what? That's been my style for quite some time now, as far as um like brand sets. I do I do think something that's taking a hold in the hobby right now are these kind of custom sets really driven by the PSA set registry, where you can collect a set of say every heart trophy winner every rookie of the year ever um all the hall of famers every wayne gretzky base card that's ever come out there's those kinds of new sets which are are more custom sets that i do think people are doing hey look who's here roddy booth welcome to the party rod sorry you're late you did win the dry cycle limited autograph earlier at the beginning of the show i don't know if you heard but that card is uh, coming your way from wayne and um doug glory sports cards out of barry ontario Back to patch faking. Adam Cormier has a question. It's a big one. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. It might cut out our chins, but let's take a look. What about a card technique where they sign the patch, certify it with foil, enhance it, hologram? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things that they could do. Um, but you know what? I think there's a lot of things that we as collectors don't really consider. It's just not within our realm of thought that could come into play that make a lot of these things um, just not really logistically possible. I'm not saying your ideas, Adam, aren't, but I think that there are things that 
we often say out loud that we'd like to see, but just maybe um, can't happen. Andy says, I bought card from Scandals, I'm pretty sure. Do you, yeah, do you sell from eBay, on eBay from time to time? I do, but I'll be honest with you. I, uh, it's rare when I sell cards. I'm lazy. Um, so usually I try to, I, I, I will usually go to friends of mine that I know are interested right away and I'll offer them first. But uh, I, 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 selling on eBay is just so arduous and I just don't have the time. But um, I, I do. I absolutely do still sell on eBay. Yeah. Right on. Here's a question from Jeff. This is a big one. It's cutting off our chins, but that's okay. We'll keep it up for a second. So Jeff's also a super high-end collector. Todd, I don't know if you know if you know Jeff. Uh, oh, you you would have met him at the Summit I think, show. Yeah, we have met him. He says he saw some of your cards at the Summit. Great stuff. Would like to hear thoughts on jersey numbered SP game used rookie, and if possible, would love to see some of your top set patches. So first of all, I can tell you, Jeff, we do have we are going to do a bit of a show and tell with Todd here towards the end of the uh, the discussion. Um, but Todd, why don't you speak to your thoughts on the the jersey numbered SP game used rookies? Well, I, I think uh, first of all, and good to see you, Rod. Glad to uh, congratulations on the win, by the way. Um, I, you know, I, I I have moved away from collecting the cup sets. I still buy cup cards, but I only pick the rookies that I'm really comfortable collecting or the guys that I'm really into. I don't build the sets anymore, and the reason I don't build those sets anymore, and I have moved away, uh, is largely because of there was so much filler. Uh, and, and, you know, if you bought a, if there was an 80 card checklist, 20 of those guys were good 60, you'd never heard of the year after. And some of those guys played one game. So I, you know, I was paying five, $600 for those guys for years. And, uh, you know, there's just, there's just a point in time where insanity, uh, uh, you know, comes back to bite you. I, I can't, I, I just quit doing that. So I, I, the reasoning is that I, I, I couldn't just do the set and not have the best card. So I don't, I don't build those sets anymore. I just pick the handful of the cards that I do like. Um, but to answer that question that, uh, that was just put up, I love SP Game Used. Uh, it is my new uh, – it's one of the two sets I collect now. I do Exquisite and I do SP Game Used. And uh, Exquisite, obviously, is the patch auto. Uh, it's jersey numbered. But I love SP Game Used. Uh, I, it's, and those jersey number – or sorry, the, um, the jersey numbered copies that are autographed, uh, they're one-of-one one rookies. And to me – those are the best. That's the player's best card. I mean, everyone can, we can argue this for days, but uh, me, to me, that's the best. That's the most desirable card. If you're a player collector, you need that card. It's a one of one true rookie. And so I, I love those cards. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I actually have a couple to show you a little bit later on. Right on. Very cool. And I agree with you. Those SP game used true rookies, especially the one of one Jersey numbered one, like the 27 to 27 that's autographed. I do think those are one-on-ones in my mind, and those are, to me, among the best single cards issued for each player each year. What of the big ones? So the 97 and 97 Connor, the 34-34 um, Austin Matthews, the dry, which ones of those? Uh, what are the top couple that you have, just to let people know? Um, you know what? I have most of them. Uh, there's another guy. There's a buddy of mine, actually, in the United States, and him and I have cornered this market. His name's Mike. He's a great guy. Um, we've pretty much, you know, for the last couple of years, and, and the reason we've, I, I say we've cornered the market, these have largely flown under the radar. I don't think a lot of people know that these were even put out because they were, you know, I, they weren't well advertised in my opinion. And so I didn't know they were, they existed till several years after they had been made. Um, and then when I got onto it, I thought, oh my God, these are amazing. I, and, and so I have most of the big players. Uh, I don't have the McDavid and I remember watching it up on eBay years ago. Uh, it was listed. The guy wanted twelve grand for it. 
And uh, for some reason, I, I was trying to nickel and dime. I, I don't know what happened there, but somebody bought it. And to this day, it's always bit me because I, I still want that card. And, and would I have paid 12 for that? Absolutely. Yeah. So if, if it came up today without showing all your cards, would you pay more than 12 for that card today? Oh, yeah. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. Gee, he's well, only, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's the man, right? He's only gotten better. Yeah. So to get an idea from a guy who like from you've, you've been saying from the beginning of our discussion tonight, you know, you have happily overpaid for cards over the years because you've wanted them. And I find that interesting in terms of getting into the head of a guy who collects super high end stuff. What would be your, what do you think that that McDavid 97 and 97 one of one autographed SP game used true rookie is worth. And, and, and if you're the guy who is going to ultimately determine its worth, cause you're going to pay so much for it. What any idea what that number would be? You know, and every one of them is different. I uh, I would say I, and this is funny because this is a good question. Lately, we've had some problems with this in this market. People will pull cards on a live break or on a uh, on a social media forum of some kind, and the peanut gallery will tell him that this card is worth the moon because they've seen my purchases in the past. That drives me nuts. Uh, sometimes these players are absolute no names, so. You know, give or take, I'll tell you, a no-name uh, guy that maybe um, like a, I don't know, like Dylan DeMello or someone like that, like decent NHLer, but not a guy that you really want to collect. If his one-of-one one SP game used autograph card came up, uh, I definitely want it, but I'm only willing to pay a few hundred bucks for that thing, uh, which I still think is a substantial overpayment to any Dylan DeMello cards that are on the market. Yeah. But but when it becomes to to true, you know, I mean, everyone's teach their own, and and uh, you're starting to get into the multiple thousands, and uh, I've struggled with that. That's a good question because I don't know uh, the value. I don't go based on the market. I I base my my prices on how much I want that card, and right. it sounds funny, but I I know a lot of people watching right now know they're they feel like me. When you lose that card that you really wanted, you have trouble sleeping at night sometimes. And so uh, I did. I just I I will. I, I don't have a number, but it, it uh, if you really want the card, the number can be substantial. Let's put it that way. Yeah, fair enough, man. I mean, when, there's nothing worse than you wait a week, you have the card on your watch list, you even set a timer on your phone to make sure you don't forget it, and then for some reason your ringer's off. And you don't get it and you look at your phone you realize you missed it by a couple minutes and you just kick yourself and my wife my wife knows the look on my face I'll just say, <laughs> she'll say you didn't get the card did you i'm like no i forgot to bid or damn it you know i was distracted or the phone rang or something like that so funny how these things work and how we we as collectors uh you know we these things can affect our our moods for the day if we miss a big card Absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going back a few minutes here. Sean says, uh, and Sean, thanks again for joining the show a few days ago. It was awesome having you on, brother. Love the show as always. I used to grossly overpay, overpay for Gabrix, not so much now. Fair enough. Um, Josh, I overpay for Nathan Horton and Matt Johnson. I can understand a one-time overpaying for Nathan Horton. Matt Johnson, I don't know how much competition you'd have for him, but <laughs> perhaps there is, and I just don't know about it. Here's a good question. Patrick asked a really cool question, Todd. Have you ever lost out on a card to the actual player themselves or any stories you might have about dealing with a, a player themselves or their parent or anything like that? I, uh, I've got three. I've only had that happen three times in my entire hobby career. Um, one of them was jo Joffrey Lupel was the first one that I've ever dealt with. Joffrey Lupel's agent, uh, and I think obviously on Joffrey's instructions, 
he would tell his agent to buy all his best cards on eBay. And I, I had a really nice, it was one of the best Joffrey Lupul uh, upper deck premier rookies. And at the time he was a hot player, uh, a good player with a lot of promise. And so the card was a valuable card. It was a nice card. I listed it up on eBay and I get a call or a big one email, sorry. Um, asking if, if they could talk to me because they wanted to come and meet me in person and buy the card. And I thought, okay, well, let's do it that way. And it ended up being his agent. And I met him in a parking lot in Tim Hortons here in Calgary and sold him the card. And he showed up in this fancy, uh, this fancy car and uh, paid me cash. But uh, that was one time. I, I've, um, I sold a card last year to an NHLer who, uh, Shane Price, Shane Prince, Prince Shane Prince. Shane, it was, I believe it was Shane Prince. I, if I, I'm, I may be thinking of the wrong name, but it was, a, it was a rare card. He used to collect his own stuff. And so he would actually buy his own cards on eBay and you would ship it to his house and it was his name and everything. And, um, and I heard that he was in the hobby. I, I heard that before I sold his card, actually, and I ended up selling it to him. And then the, uh, uh, the last time that I had that, that happen, um, it again wasn't... I actually lost a big Pierre Turgeon card to Pierre Turgeon's family. Oh yeah, and I guess one of his nephews or his brother—I don't know who it was. It's close family, uh, but they collect all of his cards as well as I do. And uh, he won't trade; he doesn't want to trade. He's just a strictly a collector. He buys and holds, which I can respect. Uh, but I did lose out on a card to a guy that ended up being a, a relative of Pierre Turgeon. So, oh, that's pretty cool. All right. Andy gives a hint for people. That's why eSnipe.com is handy, Jeremy. So yeah, I think what Andy's referring to are these sniping software is that will actually uh, allow you to put a bid in and it will make that bid on your behalf in the last second or two uh, to make sure you don't lose the card. I used to use a sniping service. I forget which one. I haven't used them in years. And I've kind of come to the realization now that, you know, if I, if I miss out on the card, you know, oftentimes that card will appear again down the road if you're patient and, and you're pretty persistent watching your eBay searches, you may get another shot at that card. But if anyone else is interested, there's a, a suggestion for sniping software. Um, <clears throat> all right, I've got through uh, most of the questions here that I've seen. Oh, here's a question actually. Sean asked this question. Back to the SP game used uh, uh, 101 autograph rookies, Todd. Does the fact that they're sticker autoed make them less uh, valuable than a hard signed card? What are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I hate the sticker autos. I completely agree with you, Sean. Uh, it drives me nuts. That being said, I don't know if they'd be able to put out the, some of the products if they had hard-signed autos all the time. Now, would I like it more if it was hand-signed hand, you know, hand by the player? I would love that, and I would pay more for that. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. But the fact that it isn't doesn't take away the value. It's still a one-of-one. One. It's still the only copy with an autograph on it. Um, so, to me, it still has a lot of value. But you're you're absolutely right if it was hand signed that would be a more valuable card and i'd be willing to pay even more for it right yeah i, I just a, a comment on your last uh, you know i used to use e-snipe myself i used to use the a couple sniping websites i've been let down a couple times where i've missed cards because the snipe didn't work or something didn't happen so i i went to bidding myself and i do that to this day i've missed more cards bidding myself than i ever would have using a snipe service so it's a good it's a good thing to use yeah, for sure. I missed a bunch of comments back, so I'm going to go back about yep. uh, 15 minutes or so already, if I, if I may, guys. Sorry for the, re the little bit of a rewind, but Rod, Rod makes a comment. Maybe Ty Conklin bought the, the 101 that got bought by that one-time route in New York. <clears throat> Blair mentions that that card was pulled in Winnipeg, and I, I heard the same thing. We, we know we know about that. 
Sam makes the comment, Panini peerless patches and, and the cup limited logos are like looking at a gorgeous girl, super <laughs> sexy. And I agree, you know, yeah. it, it's funny to use the word sexy when we're talking about, I'm used to using that word when I'm, ta when I'm talking about girls or myself for that matter. Just kidding, guys. But, you know, when you, you use the word sexy to talk about cards, I hear it more and more now, you know, and, and um, it, it's weird to say, but, you know, we look at these cards and something goes on in our head, something psychological, and we do find them sexy. They're just nice to look at. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of when I first, that going back to the beginning of our discussion, I mentioned that first time I came over to your house and we had all of our premier RPAs up and we were comparing whose was better. I remember you said to me, you, you said to me, these are my babies. Do you remember that? I still call them my babies. These are your, like, it, it's, that's what, a, that's what passionate collectors, um, and I'm not saying yet, if you're, if you don't do this, you're not a passionate collector, but some real passionate collectors consider these things like babies. Like it, it, it's just, uh, that, that's how into this hobby a lot of us are. So it's, it's a uh, pretty funny. What does Jason say here? He's got an 0809, the cup dual scripted swatch out of Gillies. I wouldn't mind taking, oh, I don't think he has that, Jason. He's a rookie card collector for the most part. Scott has a question. Do you buy much Turgeon stuff on eBay? I sold a bunch of his cards from Artifacts 1516. Could that have been you, Todd? Uh, probably, yes. 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 Yeah. Um, actually, oh, sorry. No. I, I, I was going to say regarding the Ty Conklin, it didn't get bought by Ty, actually. I know who bought it. I don't I don't want to say the name, but uh, it's an Asian collector, believe it or not. It's not uh, Ty. It was uh, whether he, that was his agent, maybe, but it wasn't Ty. Fair enough. Good. And it's, it's just neat that you know that, right? Reckless says uh, that he had always broke his heart that Luongo had a follow with upper deck during the limited logo, so he couldn't sign anymore. Fair enough. Um, this person, AMTMA, says that they got you the 3434. Do you know who that is? I do, and uh, thank you very much. I still have that card to this day. I love it. Thank you. Here's a Rod comment. I got the SP game used 1617 Sebastian Ajo 2020, and it isn't autographed. Is that weird? What What do you do? You know anything about that, Todd? There, if SP game used has a checklist of about 100 cards, I would say only 50 to 60 of those cards that are jersey numbered are autographed. There are a number that aren't. Why they're not, I don't. I don't understand because. You know, as we've been pointed out earlier, it's it's an it's a sticker auto, and I know they have a lot of that stuff floating around. And so, why they can't do that? Um, but that's that's not uncommon, Rod. I've got a number of those, and and I have a buddy that collects those as well. Uh, those are they're still cool cards, um, and that's not uncommon. That uh, actually, it's probably at least a third of the checklist is not signed. So it seems like when they have the autos, they affix them to the cards and to those one ones or those the the thirty four thirty four type of thing. If they don't have it. They just don't put it on. Fair enough. They can't get autographs from everybody all the time, especially during the season. Players are traveling. They don't want to be sitting there signing. So here's a comment, Richard. Back to your Turgeon collection. He says he'd love to see it. I have a feeling you outbid me on all those Turgeon 101 buybacks last year. Richard, I'm going to get go, go ahead and take a venture, uh, a guess that, yes, that's the fact. Todd, care to confirm? I probably, I, I did buy, I, I do buy basically every Turgeon 101, and I usually don't get outbid. I will say... Last year, someone outbid me on a one-on-one, and it was a beautiful card, and I don't know who it was, uh, but I do get outbid every once in a while, but it may have been me, and I apologize, Richard. I don't mean to be that guy. Uh, <laughs> I will be posting my Turgeon collection. Actually, I'm in the process of scanning it, and I'm going to be building a website that will be accessible to anyone, and it'll be up in about a month. 
Awesome, Todd. That'll be uh, something that I'm sure a lot of people like to see. Andy's asking a question here, basically saying that, you know, those SP game used autograph, and they're not patches, Andy. There's no patches on these, but these SP game used autograph cards where, where the autograph is the jersey number. So, yes, Andy, if it's a 20, if the 27 of 27 is autographed, numbers one through 26 are not autographed. So, I consider the 27 to 27 to be a, a one of one for for the main reason that it's the only one that's going to be autographed out of that whole run. Some people will really go out on a limb and say they're all one of ones because there's only number there's only one 26 of 27. There's only one 25 of 27. I, I don't buy into that logic, but I do buy into the logic that if they take the whole run of 27 and make it dis a, a make it something different about one of those cards, specifically the 27 of 27, by adding an autograph, for example, that to me does make that a one of one. Right or wrong, I'm sure everybody watching has a different opinion of that. And hey, that's what keeps the hobby interesting. We don't all approach it the same way. <clears throat> what does Rod say? Yeah, thanks, Rod. Affirming they're not auto patches, just regular jersey. That's right. Um, Rod, I'm sorry that that 2020 Aho is an autograph. That's a nice card. Oh yeah, and you know, and hey, Rod, if you want to sell it to Todd, I'm sure you guys can <laughs> discuss that uh, another time. Okay, I'm out of uh, out of comments right now. That's pretty. That's pretty good. We've gotten through a lot of the way. Oh, okay. So here's one more. What does Rod say? Let's have a look. I heard the Marner 16 to 16 was a redemption. That's strange. It wouldn't make all the jersey numbered autographs. Some are redemptions. Very strange why they pick some autograph and some not. Who knows? We could speculate yeah. all we want, but it's not true. I have that card. Oh, you do. You have the 16 to 16 autograph. I, I think, you know what, Rod? You know what happens is that in subsequent years, they do the same thing. And it's just so that the Marner from the following year, his second or third year, they're going to do the same thing. It's just not a, his rookie year. So in that year, perhaps the, the 16 to 16 wasn't autographed. Or I'm just saying maybe it wasn't the rookie card you were seeing, but hopefully it wasn't that there were two copies out there. That's for sure. All right, man. Well, listen. Um, <clears throat> Why don't you show us some cards? Okay. Okay. I can do that. I, uh, I wanted to, before I, I, I showed a few cards, I had a couple things that I just wanted to, my rules of the road that I wanted to mention to a few collectors, things that I've picked up over the years that I just, history repeats itself. And just like the stock market, people repeat themselves and crowd behavior repeats itself and it's undeniable. And so a couple of things that I've picked up over the years that, um, uh, I sort of look at when I buy cards now, uh, number one, there are only three, four, there are only four players in the modern era that their cards have gone up after the rookie year. The rookie year when a card is first released is when that card is most valuable for 99% of the market. It just, it's just the way it is. Those four players, McDavid, Ovechkin, Crosby, Drysidle and Drysidle is only there because nobody thought he was going to be this good. You could you could also throw Eric Carlson in the mix because he was drafted late. He wasn't expected to be a really good player. He ended up going up a little bit. He's come down obviously in recent years, but there's only four big name players that have really gone up year over year after the rookie uh, release. Um, the other thing I've noticed is that um, defensemen, no matter how good they are, and there's a lot of really really great defensemen defensemen never go up over time no matter how good they are they have to be hall of famers and so you've got to wait 20 years or you know 25 years for this guy to actually make the hall of fame for the card to be legitimate and i'll give you a good example 
Look at um, look at all the Norris Trophy winners. Look at Carlson. Look at Drew Doughty. Look at Victor Hedman. Look at uh, Petrangelo, Alex Petrangelo for St. Louis. You can go on and on and on. The best defensemen in the NHL, their cards go down virtually every year that they play. And it's not that you know it's not like they they tank, but they don't go up. That's it's, yeah. it's just a, it's a very consistent thing in the market. And and so um, uh, you know those are the two things that I've noticed that you know maybe people can save some money if they're collecting or building the sets. Some a player that comes to mind for me in that, uh, especially because he played for an original six team and a very a one with a team with a, a ton of fans, is Nicholas Lidstrom of the Detroit Red Wings. <clears throat> I mean, how many Norris trophies did he win? I don't know off the top of my head, four or five. How many cups does he have? At least a couple. He was probably the best defenseman of the 90s overall. You know, but then you think about a guy like um, Bobby Orr, obviously, one of the greatest of all time, arguably the, some people say better than Wayne Gretzky. I never saw him play live, but, you know, uh, Raymond Bork, Paul Coffey, these guys do have value, but like you said, they are Hall of Famers. They've got Stanley Cups or Cup. Um, you know, and it's interesting because you look at a player like the two two rookies that stick out to me this past year were Quinn Hughes and Kale McCarr in terms of, defensemen, rookies, and players that were exciting to the point where Wayne Gretzky said that Quinn Hughes had some of the best hands he's ever seen. I thought, you know, that's going to add value to Quinn Hughes' cards because Wayne Gretzky, the greatest of all time, is recognizing that. Do you, I mean, history has always shown that these defensemen's cards do not go up in value over time. What would it take, in your opinion, for that to change, if anything, what, what would have to happen for a defenseman, a defenseman's rookie card to have value long term and to go up over time? You know, that's a very good question. And I don't know. Uh, maybe Kale McCarr is the guy to break the mold or maybe it is Hughes. But I, I will say my own I will make this bet right now and I hope I'm proven wrong because uh, I've got a number of Kale McCarr rookie cards. I bet you he could win a Norris trophy next year and his cards aren't worth what they were on release this year. Even even though he's proven that he is that guy we all think he is. His cards, it, it's and the reason is if you when you look the most hype uh, of any player is the potential before they've actually hit the ice, because you you've got all this like he could be the next Bobby Orr or he yeah. could be the next Nicholas Lidstrom, and so that that's priced into his card on release. But when he starts to become that player, that value actually disintegrates and it actually falls. It's very odd and and. Uh, so I don't know what breaks that mold, to be honest with you. You know, but every year um, I still buy those guys and I still collect them, and I, I I hope that the mold breaks. And I don't even care, to be honest with you, because that's not what I do. I don't look at you know I don't look at making money. I, I want to collect certain players. So um, I hope it changes. I've been in this hobby for a long time, and it's never changed. Yeah, you know, I hear you. I think what one of the things that could possibly change it would be if that player finished like top three or five in scoring perennially, perennially, like more than one year. You know, Brent Burns had a pretty solid year there a couple years ago and his cards spiked and now they've settled back down to where they were. But I, I think scoring is what drives value for cards yeah. more than anything else. Of course, goaltenders have their large niche of, of collectors, but, you know, that's the deal. You got the goalies in the back, you got the scoring up front, and then these defensemen kind of caught in limbo in the middle and, not a lot of love, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> name asks, are you on Instagram? If so, what's your handle? Name, Todd is not on Instagram as far as his cards go. 
So um, I did ask him before the show if he was, and I would have put it up on the board. But Todd's, uh, as he said earlier, besides this interview or this discussion tonight, sort of a private, uh, a private or more private sort of guy. But he is going to be developing a Pierre Turgeon website to showcase his Turgeon collection eventually. Um, Tim mentions, I can't wait to see it. Missing a combo card, I believe out of 10. Has that a three copy. Very cool. Um, <laughs> Rod, the Yahoo is available, Todd. <laughs> Thanks, Rod. PL Julian says, do you regret at all overspending for some no-name cup rookies over the years? Yes and no. That's a question I ask myself all the time. Um, when I look back, as I said at the start of this interview, I've I probably spent two and a half million dollars building my collection. Is it worth two and a half? Not even, not even half that. Um, but you know, I, I, I've got a good collection, but the, just the constant upgrading and the constant overpaying just to have that best card. Would I do it again? Maybe because at the same time, I, I don't, this isn't about money or it's not about making money to me. And, and I know uh, every good hobby has a cost. I've, obviously mine is a, a substantial cost. But it made me happy, and it's what I collected. It was my thing, and it was actually – I had a stressful job for, for 20 years that, uh, you know, working 12, 14-hour days and, and extremely stressful. That was my escape, and I was willing to pay whatever for it. And if I wanted that card, that was fine. That made me happy. So at the end of the day, I probably wouldn't do anything differently. Have I wasted a ton of money? Yeah. Well, there's – and you know what? I think people waste money all the time on all sorts of different things, and if this is the one that – makes you happy, keeps your sanity and and really helps you with that work-life balance when you are working those 12, 16 hour days. Again, all the power to you. You, you got to do what you got to do to get through everything in life, right? We all have our own our own uh, vices, if you will. Yeah. Back to cards that have um, increased since coming out. You mentioned the four. Your pal AMTMA mentions Pasternak. There's another one that I think you Good just call. mentioned. Yeah. Good call. What does Richard say? I think Brent Burns too, but peanuts relative to the Crosby's. Yeah. Kucherov, another one that has, you know, I think that I want to say though, the difference between the Pasternak and the Kucherov, and I might be wrong on this, is that these guys weren't huge prospects before their rookie season. Maybe That's exactly local, it. Maybe in their own local markets they were, but I never really heard of Pasternak mm-hmm. until he got ice time. Same with Kucherov. So, you know, those guys weren't expected to be major players. They weren't super hyped up, but then they hit the ice and they light it up. And all of a sudden the hype is real. Like there, there's really substantial foundation for that hype. Um, I'm sure there's a couple more, but. Uh, Good points. No, those are all correct. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Looking forward toward the future, Todd, what are your upcoming RCs to look out for? Lafreniere, Byfield. Is there anyone on your radar at this time? Um, you know, I, I try to collect, uh, mo- I, 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 <laughs> this is funny. I may be tipping my hat a little bit too much. I actually, uh, I, I pay for a subscription online to one of the, the hockey prospect websites that ranks hockey prospects. Uh, and I usually buy the top 50. So yeah, yeah I buy all of those guys. Yeah. Here's a comment. Peter Chow says Duncan Keith's young gun last cup run was $90 now $15. So back to the defenseman talk and how, you know, we really are a hobby of what have you done for me lately? And, uh, you know, that that's a great example to Duncan Keith. I remember when that card was all the rage after the, that they won, I think it was back-to-back cups. Yep. And that card was, everybody had to have one. Same with the Brent Burns a few years later. And now it's a basically a, not quite a common, but it's a $15 card. In terms of that card, though, 
he will be a Hall of Famer, I yep. firmly believe. Yep. And that card could see a resurgence at that time. Um, any comments on that at all, Todd? No, I completely agree with what you said. And that is a good point, Peter. You know, Duncan Keith has got a, uh, he's got a, at least one Norris. I, I, I don't know if he's got two, but he's got a, a Con Smythe. He's got three or four cups. Um, he is a Hall of Famer in my point of view, and he's been amazing for a long time. But it's this hobby, people have to remember, it's a fickle hobby. And, and it is, it's what have you done for me lately? And at the same time, I think there's only so much money that people put into their card budget. And when they want to buy the next shiny new thing, they have to sell the old thing. And what happens when you sell things? It goes down in price. It's just like a stock. If you want to sell something and buy the hot new stock, you're probably going to sell something at a lower value down the road than you what you paid for it. If you want to get rid of it, like if you're dumping something, not necessarily dumping it, but you know what I mean. If you're so there is constant pressure on on those prices as people sell those cards and buy the new hot ones. Um, it's just the way the hobby is, and so it's unfortunate. Uh, I mean, that's why if you're a, a player collector or a set builder. I would wait till year number two or year number three and I would go back and you can chip away. And if you're patient, you can buy all those cards for a third of the value you would have paid in year one. Yeah. Andy's just wants to say, you know, good advice on the defenseman, typically poor investment. So thanks for pointing that out. Josh makes the comment Lidstrom's RCs were in the overproduction era though. Yeah. Uh, that, we can't, we can't discount that true. fact. I mean, Lidstrom, Solani, Forsberg, Hasek, Lindros, Martin Brodeur, I, we went over this on a prior episode. Yeah, there's so many. Um, Peter Forsberg, Dominic Hasek, so many top-notch Hall of Famers whose rookie cards were mass-produced in those days that they just there's really no way for them to become a lot more valuable than they are. However, you know the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie and the Frank Thomas Leaf rookie; those were way overproduced in those years, and now those cards in you know. PSA 10 slabs have just doubled and tripled in the last few months. So I wonder if there's any chance for hockey to do the same. Do you have those types of cards in your collection, Todd, those nineties boom era hall of fame rookies? I do. And, and to me, what differentiates, uh, sorry, what differ, differentiates cards nowadays is the print run and the patch. Uh, and obviously if it's sticker or true auto, I think that helps as well. But back in the nineties, when cards were all printed to a million, the only thing that differentiates cards back then was the grade. So if you you know if you wanted a PSA ten Lidstrom, um, they'll still get decent money. I mean, uh, you're not you're paying twenty or thirty bucks, but what's a Lidstrom ungraded? Maybe a yeah. dollar. So it, I mean, people won't pay the shipping on that stuff. Yep. Yeah. So I I think it, it in the '90s the only thing that made cards better was the grade. Yeah. Fair. Um, and then Jason mentioned, he, I think this is back towards what does it take for a defenseman's cards to actually have value long-term? I think, you know, he's probably right. Lead the league or be top three in scoring. And we haven't seen that since Bobby Orr in the seventies. So, you know, and Andy follows up saying no, and the mold is, I think you're saying no mold is getting broken as in it's not going to change. So I agree. I mean, time will tell, but you're probably right. Peter mentions the hype is built into the pricing for rookies. Now, if you aren't a league leader trophy winner consistently, they are dropping. I think that's been the spirit of what we've been saying. I agree. I agree. Richard asks if Todd is on hobby insider. Uh, yes, you am, are. Right? Your username is scandals scandals. HLX. Same as my eBay name. Yeah. Not very active, but you do have an account there. Yep. <clears throat> Guys. I want to introduce to you, Richard Barone. 
asked, what's up, Jeremy Ritchie, just here, chilling out with Todd, doing up live show, Sports Cards Live number four. Guys, look at the streamer at the bottom of the screen. We have the, we also call Rich Barone the mayor of Canada. We'll get into that. He'll be joining me here on April 29th. So <clears throat> be sure to talk, tune in then. And if you haven't, if you've only heard of the legend of the mayor of Canada, tune in then to, to meet him then. He will be joining me. Can't wait for that. Peter also says, I'm an old school set collector, all SP authentic and young guns. When they get hot, I sell them and rebuild a few years later. Todd, Great you know idea. what? This is a question I wish I thought of myself. Peter, awesome question. Thanks for asking because Todd and I have discussed this exact issue before. Todd, take it away. What are your thoughts on that? Do you ever plan to do it? Have you done it? I, I think it's a great idea, to be honest with you, Peter. I think it's a smart idea financially. I think it's something that uh, uh, hopefully not everybody does because then the trend won't work. But right now it does work. Um, and I, I so I think you are on to something. Jeremy and I have had the discussion over the years of, if you you know, if you really like the cup sets, why don't you go out and buy one single color? If, you, if patches really don't matter, and you know, in the age of fake patches, you can build a cup set, an entire cup set with single color or you know two color patches, boring stuff. You can do it for pennies on the dollar. Like you can go into card stores sometimes, and they'll have cup rookies that are no names in a shoebox that says five bucks for anything. So. I, if you don't care about the patch and Jeremy and I've talked about this, you can have a, an entire cup set every year for pennies on the dollar. And I think that's, that's kind of cool. Right on. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, <clears throat> you can do that. And another benefit of not caring about the patch or the, the multicolor patches is that you have a less probability of having fake patches in your, in your sets as well. So you may sleep a little bit better at night if you don't like, um, cards with improved or fake patches uh it's it's interesting and i've often thought about it and you know when you talk about cars and collector vehicles you know people will all the time add aftermarket parts to their cars and they will often increase the value or they'll switch out the engine or whatever they do those often increase the value of cars card collectors were much more fickle we're much more um i think just uh traditional we don't want anything changed on our cars we want them the way they came out of the pack for the most part so I've, I've often wondered like what's wrong with an improved patch and i'm not saying i'm advocating it at all but in just you know really philosophically what's wrong with doing that and i think the fact is is that somebody tried to profit off of you um and really was uh was was leaving it one key fact out of the transaction in that this is not the same card as it was when it came out of the pack. I'm sure there's other reasons I'm not thinking of, but stuff that I have thought about before. Have you ever had similar thoughts like that? I, I think you're bang on. It's it's the disappointment that you basically overpaid for something that wasn't authentic. Um, I, I'm a bit of a hobby purist. I, I, I want that card original, whether it's got two or three colors on it or six, I want that card in its original condition, the way it came off the factory line. And, and that's just how I feel. Um, I know there are collectors that are different and that's, that's great because this is a hobby that you can do whatever you want and you collect whatever you want. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just not my thing. And, uh, but yeah, when you're, when, when someone is intentionally doing it to make money off it, uh, I've got a huge problem with that. I, I will say though, that as a, I think in ho hockey, particularly, we may have a sort of a, a tendency to become too much of a, a purist in the hobby. I, I have a, 
I won't buy upper deck cards that they release the next year to fill gaps in the set that they l did the year before. So for example, they have these update sets now that they release in packs. They'll put rookies out that they missed or that they couldn't get into the print run the year prior. And they'll actually put the year prior uh, date on the back, even though it was made, you know, the very next year. So I don't like that. That wasn't a card that came off the print run with the rest of them. I don't buy stuff like that. I know the hobby, you know, still out to judge these things. They seem, they seem to be popular. Some people don't mind that. It, it's just my thing. And I think that's probably an issue. And it's particularly a hockey issue. You don't see that in basketball. You don't see it in baseball. Um, they've got a much broader sort of uh, open mind to things. And I think that maybe that's where we should go. But at this point, um, yeah, I, I'm a bit of a purist. And that's probably a bad thing. Well, you know, I, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing because you you have your standards. You know what you like. You know what makes sense to you. And um, you, I think you got to stick with it, right? You don't want to start changing directions uh, at this point of the game, you know, 25 years into the hobby. And all of a sudden, you got to question everything you've done. So I, I like what you're doing. I like the way – I like the the approach of being that, the purest from that angle. I think most people do. Um, your friend uh, AMTMA asks, what is your uh, most favorite card you have, you have recently or last acquired? Anything come to mind? Well, actually, did you want me to? I brought. I've I've got twelve cards to show you that I call my Let, dirty dozen. Do you want to? Do you want to do that? Well, let's look at the first one because I think. Did you just grab one specifically for that question? If you did, let's see that one, and then we'll come back to them after. Uh, the the card that I bought recently, and actually, I don't even have it uh, in hand, um, but I bought the uh, the Jack Hughes SP. Oh, sorry, yeah, the Jack Hughes SP game used jersey number one of one autograph. Um, I just bought that it, uh, it, you know, and it's come in a few weeks ago. I don't have that in front of me right now, unfortunately. Uh, but that's my new favorite card that was bought within the last few weeks. I also bought a, uh, an Alex to uh, exquisite rookie, a patch auto exquisite rookie. And it's numbered out of, was it 10 or 12? I, it's, it's very short numbered. I just bought that, uh, a few weeks ago as well. And, and that's uh, another big card I've been looking for for years since it was released actually. Is it a nice patch? Because that's a Blackhawk card. So is it a multicolor? It, it's it's an okay patch, but it's the, the only one I've ever seen. So you got to grab it. Got to yeah. grab it. I want to thank Rod for this comment, guys. So um, I mentioned a few minutes ago, Rich Barone, the mayor of Canada, will be joining <laughs> the 29th. Rich is a, uh, a no-filter kind of guy. He's one of, my, one of my good friends in the hobby. I've known Rich uh, since... Um, Oh boy, since 2009, we've been pals. So he'll be joining me. And yes, we it may not be uh, for children that night. We'll see, how it goes. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Andy, ooh, the mayor. Everybody knows about the mayor. All right. Um, here's Rod speaking about the Eichel card, which I think you were just speaking about in terms of cards that come out in a later year that were not released in the first year for whatever reasons. In this case, um, Leaf, trading cards had the exclusive autograph rights for Jack Eichel. So Upper Deck couldn't do an autographed rookies in the cup or in any set. So what they did is they put out the Jack Eichel rookies. They just were a non-autoed version. Then a couple years later, when that exclusive ran out between Jack Eichel and Leaf, they went back to the drawing board, those original designs, remade those cards, patch autos, added the hard signed autos and put them in the pack of, in the 1819 cup, uh, cup sets. And issued them. So those are the ones that, uh, that 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 you were talking about. And here's another collector, Rod, saying that that just does not appeal. Oh, wait, sorry, he's saying no, he I likes it. Yeah, autographed. I would buy all the autographed versions that came. Oh, he's saying the other way. So he like he's saying he prefers that card to the non-autoed one that came out. 
and I'm I'm kind of I've actually personally been on the fence about this exact case. Um, I actually preferred the one that came out with the auto. If I was going to be someone who had the set, I would have taken that and put it in my old set. I actually think that 10, 20 years down the road, people aren't going to remember what product or what year that card came out in. But anyway, we don't need to revisit that so much right now. I know you said, Todd, you want the one that came out during the rookie year. That is the older card. And I certainly see the argument for that. Any follow-up comments though, before we move along? Well, I mean, Rod's got a good point. I actually see both sides. If as a player collector for Turgeon, I will. I would buy those cards. Uh, I would buy all of those cards. The first year that didn't have the auto and the follow-up that did have the auto, I'd want both of them. As a set collector, I want the ones that are made that year. And so I I only bought the, the Eichel Cup rookie without the autograph. And when they came out with the autograph, uh, it was a couple years later. That's not a rookie card in my view. And, and it wasn't part of the original set that was released when everybody else came out off the same production line. So... I personally didn't buy that, uh, but if I'm a player collector, I totally see you, Rod, and I would buy those cards. Right on. Okay, so before we get into looking at some more of your cards for a bit more of a show and tell, I'm just going to remind everybody, <clears throat> sorry if I'm getting a little broken record on this, but a couple of things. Um, please do subscribe to the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel. I needed to get to 100 uh, subscribers before I could get the dedicated URL where we got there, but now I realize... I read more of the information. You got to be a, a channel of 30 days old at least. So I'm not quite, we're not quite 30 days old yet. So keep subscribing. Let's get those numbers up. I'd really appreciate it. Also, <clears throat> well, it's going on the bottom there, but you guys on May the 2nd, which is the Saturday of Expo, I have Chris Carlin, who is really the face of Upper Deck. Wow. He'll be joining me here. And we're going to have a second guest, Steve Menzi. Steve owns the mm -hmm. Expo in Toronto. So he's going to come on. And these guys, we're, we're going to talk about the state of the hobby with COVID. We're going to talk about what their plans are, how they're dealing with their loss of revenue during this challenge, during this crisis. And um, we'll see what else they have to say. Any other potential surprises or anything they may have for us. So make sure you join me here May 2nd. But we'll be doing that. Um, that'll be starting one hour earlier. We'll be starting at 9 o'clock Eastern uh, for that one. And then we've also got Dr. Brian Price, owner of... of um, President's Choice Trading Cards, the prior owner of In The Game Trading Cards. Um, he also was, he had the first Parkhurst license back uh, in the early 90s. He worked for Pro, he wor worked with ProSet. He worked with Pinnacle Brands. The guy has been in the hobby as long as anybody. He's going to join me on here on May the 26th. And that's all I can think of right now. I got, but I do have guys, I have guests lined up for basically every Wednesday and Saturday right through until May 23rd. So a couple surprise guests, some guys that you're going to really enjoy watching. So make sure you're uh, keeping up with my posts and tune in for all those shows. They should be pretty awesome. Um, <clears throat> okay. Thanks for letting me get that out, everybody. I appreciate that. Rod says, yeah, he agrees with your comment, Todd. You know, if he were a set collector, he'd want the original too. So I think that's a, a huge difference. Um, name who goes by the the Twitter, or sorry, the Instagram handle, Indigenous Rookie Cards, a good friend of mine. Name uh, saying, yeah, Chris Carl, yes, name, we have those guys coming on the show, guys. If you're on Instagram, follow name Indigenous Rookie Cards um, on Instagram. I'm sure he'd be very uh, happy to have you following him. And you're more impressed with Todd. Well, thank you, uh, <laughs> TMA, as I'll call you. Okay, through the comments, do you want to uh, show some of your other Dirty Dozen? Sure. 
Um, so the first card I have is not, it's, it's a big card to me. And some of these cards aren't big cards, but to me, they, they are, these are the rarest 12 cards I own. Um, and this, this first one, actually, I'm going to show because I, I want to prove a point to a lot of people that are watching and they may think that some collectors get preferential treatment from upper deck. Uh, I'll be honest with you with all the money I've spent in the hobby, I've never got any preferential treatment from upper deck. And so all my redemptions I get a lot of one colors too, guys. I get a ton of stuff that I end up reselling on the market because it's just not for me. But I got one card a couple of years ago that blew my mind. And so I, I uh, if you remember John Klingberg, uh, had a really good rookie year. He's kind of cooled off a little since then, but good player, good defenseman for the Dallas Stars. His exquisite rookie, because his jersey number is, is number three, so his exquisite cards were only numbered out of, they only th had three copies made. They were redemptions. And I bought one of the, the three redemptions that showed up online, and I paid quite a bit for it. And when I finally got it, um, and it ended up being just an unbelievable sort of patch. I don't know if you can see that, but uh, it's numbered out of three. It's just an amazing card. It's the center of the Dallas logo. That, to me, is, you know, you can't get much better than that. And there's only three made. So I love that card. And thank you very much, Upper Deck, because that was the best redemption I've ever received. Yeah. Um, so that's my first one. Is that, uh, the shoulder, is that the shoulder patch? It is, yep. Yeah, that's a beauty. So I getting to the SP game used, I've got a couple of those to show. Uh, this one I bought before it was a big card. Otherwise, I'd be scared to know how much I'd have to pay for it now. It's the Leon Dreisaitl rookie, one-of-one uh, one jersey. And this card, I don't know if uh, the glare there, but anyway, this card is... Uh, sorry, guys. That's good. Um, just an absolute beauty. You can just barely see the autograph there. It's, it's number 29 of 29. It's his jersey number. It's the only one that's autographed. That is a very rare card. And obviously, I'm a local fan of the Calgary Flames being a Calgary guy. There's my uh, 19 of 19, Matthew Kachuk. Uh, to me, that's a, yeah, that's a monster card. That's a, a very cool card. Um, and my, I only have two other SB game used to show you. And these go out to the East Coasters, all the Leafs fans. And this one came up earlier. I've got both the... The Matthews and the Marner. And so 34 of 34 and the 16 of 16 autographed. I consider one-on-one rookie cards to me probably the best rookie cards of, of their whole year. I, I would agree. And I know there's no patch on them and it's a sticker auto, but that's that is a one-of-one one true rookie. It doesn't get much better than that to me. So those were those are big cards. I paid quite a bit, uh, as one of your uh guests today knows, because uh this card was uh, picked up from them. Oh, not that one. Sorry. The, the, the Matthews. And thank you again. I, I couldn't, I, honestly, I build my collection every year through mostly through other people and just great collectors that are willing to sell their cards. So thank you very much. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. The next uh, comment I'm going to put up is uh, we don't have uh, the name, but I think I know who it is. So this, I believe is uh, my buddy Darcy. He's asking, have you started to get involved with the huge upswing of basketball? Why do you feel there are higher price on basketball or even baseball. Um, is that something, Todd? That oh, sorry. Is that something, Todd, that you can speak to? Do you uh, do you have you touched the basketball stuff at all? Yes, I've dabbled a little bit, and only because the prices have gone crazy. Uh, basketball is not. A, I like basketball. I play basketball. Uh, I I never have collected basketball cards, and I know very little about the market. In the last, I'd say six months, I have dabbled, and I have got. I picked up a few cards here and there hoping that next year they're going to be worth more and I can sell them. Um, they're not cards I'm going to keep. I am dabbling on a strictly investment basis. 
Uh, I will say the market for basketball is just so much bigger, so much bigger. Uh, it's it's like, you know, and, and I, I keep coming back to the stock market. People think the stock market is, is what runs things. It's the bond market. And the bond market dwarfs the, the stock market by far. There's just so much more money in it. Same thing with basketball. There is just so much more money in it. And I know that there's a lot of uh, people that break basketball in Asia, for example, uh, a lot of big, there's not a lot of big breakers of hockey in Asia. And so there's just money from all over the place. Um, and that's why I think prices have gone crazy. Now, that being said, I, I'm a little worried. Prices have gone nuts and that always makes me worried. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I've dabbled a little bit for sure on a strictly investment basis. And I don't know if I'll lose money on that. Well, I remember about a year, not quite a year ago, maybe five, six months ago, I was over at your place. We were hanging out and I brought my my recent pickups to show you as I always do. And you show me yours. And I pulled out a basketball card that I that I brought. I actually brought a, a shoebox filled. I had a whole bunch of stuff I hadn't shown you yet. And one of the cards I brought you was a basketball card. And you you couldn't stop looking at it. You you loved the card. Do you happen? Do you remember what that was? Well, it was either uh, there was a Jordan or a Shaquille O'Neal. It was the Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, it, it was the from a Fleer product. It was the Big Man on Court card. And um, I don't have it out to show anybody, but it was. A, it's a beautiful card. I'm, I, you know, okay. and as you know, I've gotten into that basketball stuff. Uh, you know, I've collected basketball cards my whole life, but now I'm getting more away from just the Hall of Fame rookies and getting into some of the cool cards from the '90s that are just really awesome to look at. Uh, I'm really enjoying that stuff. So, um, let's see what else we have here. Um, so Rod's just making a comment, you know, the SP game is one of the best sets out there. He thinks it's undervalued. And I think that goes back to what you were saying, Todd, under the radar as well. Not a lot of people were aware of it. Right? I agree, Rod. Yeah. Tim makes the comment. I thought he loves them too. Glad I got one for my PC guy that had one. Yeah. I mean, if you can get them, that's really all you can ask for. Right. Um, okay. Awesome. Any, any more cards to show or was that about it? No, I've got uh, a small handful of more. Just uh, I'll be quick with them though. These are the two rarest cards I own. And I don't know if people, uh, they're not really big cards, to be honest with you. Um, one of them is the, well, I'll show this one. It's a, it's a Pavel Brendel Upper Deck Young Guns. And it's the Upper Deck Gold Reserve version. But they released this before he was a player. And the NHLPA said, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You have to pull those out of packs. He hasn't played a game yet. So they actually, Upper Deck went back to the uh, packs ripped them all open, pulled out all his rookies, and remade the whole set without him. The This made it into circulation. And there was rumor that maybe five or less did make it into circulation. And so I know he's not a big player. He was a first overall draft pick. He was a big player back in the day, and this was a big card. Um, and this is one of those cards. I've never seen another copy. This is the only one that I've ever seen exist. Uh, to me, that's a monster. It's just so hard to find. And same with, with this one. It's the Jason Spezza. And it's the same story. It's the, it's the young gun that they released before he had a game. And the NHLPA said, no, no, you've got to pull that out. You can't release rookie cards unless they played a game. So Upper Deck went, ripped up all the boxes and packs, pulled them all out and redid the set. And uh, a handful made it into production. And there's a few that exist. And if you can find any of these, buy them. They are crazy rare. Uh, so that's those are two that aren't really big cards, but I thought were kind of neat. Um and this they are. A, let me just jump in sorry, quickly. Yeah. Those are neat. They are neat that they're so rare. And and I just want to to provide some context, knowing you the way I do. The reason why you even have these cards is because, well, twofold, I believe. One is that 
your goal was to have every rookie card ever made of any player that's played in the NHL. So, and not just the, our rookie card, but the best rookie card available for every player. Right. So that's why those cards were so important to you. And um, is that right? Is that an accurate sort of? Uh, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Very 100% correct. I want the best card of every rookie card that's ever been made. Yeah. You know, Rod goes on to say um, the Spets, I did see a few of those over the years. Now, I don't think that that takes away from the fact it's rare. I think it actually means that Rod is very active and he's at, I know, I've known Rod for years. He's at the expo. He's a high end dealer. So he's someone who would, if anyone's going to come across cards like that, it's a guy like Rod, a guy like you, a guy like me, who's active at shows all the time, you know, and it's cool. You're telling these stories for guys like Josh, who, you know, you just never heard the stories before. So yeah, definitely cool. Uh, Richard, so this is gonna. This question should make you kind of smile because someone else knows about this. Todd, did you have the uh, the Stephen Weiss that was also in that set? I've got all fifteen. All fifteen. There was fifteen cards that were supposed to not be released that made it into packs. I own all of them. I have the Stephen Weiss as well. Yeah, or the Weiss. Yeah, right on. And Chris says that he he remembers them as well on the Beckett boards a few years ago. People probably searching for them and uh, trying to find those. So. Yeah, very cool, man. You're probably not the only person who chases them, and now you, maybe you'll get a phone call or two from people who are still looking for them. Remains to be seen. Right on. Let's see more cards. If anyone remembers mid-'90s, Black Diamond, when it first came out, was a very cool set, and Joe Thornton, uh, his rookie, his best rookie is Black Diamond. The, t the condition of the foil on the edging was terrible, and uh, the grading was basically you'd pull your hair out. You'd never find a 9 or a 9.5, let alone a 10. Um, I own the the only one of one Joe Thornton 10. This card was actually featured in Beckett at one point before I bought it. And I bought it from a collector who didn't want to sell it. So I obviously had to pay quite a bit of money for it. But it is a it's a one of one. And uh, that's a guy that I think will end up in the Hall of Fame. So that's kind of a cool oh, card. Yeah. Um, the, we started this conversation. You, you mentioned that uh, Rick Nash, first card to break $1,000. This is the card. Oh, there, that's from the cover of Beckett. That's the one that was on the cover, isn't it? Yes. So that, that card in 2003, maybe early 04. No, late 04. That would have been late 04. It, it would have been late, yeah. Probably 04. That, card was on the, that exact card was on the cover of the Beckett magazine, basically with a headline, the first hockey card to ever sell for over $1,000, or modern hockey card to sell for over $1,000. And just think about that statement, right? Think about that <laughs> statement now. 18, 17, 18 years later, where even scrub cards can sell for over a thousand dollars on the regular. So it's it's really funny how far the hobby has come from that card being the first thousand dollar card. I mean, two years later, the Sidney Crosby Cup rookie, you know, that broke the three thousand dollar barrier, and then the five thousand, and now you can't get one for under twenty thousand dollars. So, yeah. and McDavid's can sell for fifty thousand dollars. It, it's truly really just mind-blowing how far the hobby has come and how much value we attribute to these pieces of cardboard and fabric and ink and the, just what a, what a store of value they've become pretty pretty awesome we've had a couple more comments they're they're just uh rod and uh, michael too long for me to bring on the screen they will cut our faces off so i'm not going to bring them on but if you do want to uh rewrite them much shorter we can definitely um do i'm going to read i'll read rod's comment sure. here he says I have a card never made too. It's my favorite card in my collection. 0405 Legends Classics Triple Auto of Coffee, Bork, and Murphy. I bought it online. It only had Bork and Coffee's auto. Oh, I know this story, Rod. I remember. So he the card was released 
without Larry Murphy's autograph. It only had Paul Coffey and Ray Borks. And a few years later, when Murphy was at the Expo, he got him to sign and he completed oh, the card wow. that Upper wow. Deck or, or Panini wasn't able to complete at the time. So that's a pretty cool story, Rod. I do remember that. <clears throat> that's awesome. Yeah. All right, man. Listen, I mean, we're going on an hour 45, right around where I thought we'd go. Um, we've covered the topics that I had kind of, uh, that we had discussed to, to talk about today. Um, if there's, I can wait for a few more comments to come in. If you're still good for time, I did mention to you before we went live that I was going to open up a pack of hockey cards during the show today. So <clears throat> I'll just tell a quick story, everybody. So before I started doing this live show, I actually, and the reason why I'm kind of doing this is I went into one of the vintage card groups on Facebook and I said to the administrators, hey, can I come in and do a live stream and just so, show some cards that I want to sell? And they said, yeah, no problem, but you can't show anything that's modern. So only up to 1989. I said, fine. Well, through that, I was talking to a guy in there and I made mention that I collect unopened packs of OPG hockey from 1970 till 1989. And the only one I'm missing is 1989. So he said, hey, I'm, this guy, he reached out to me, Ken Riddle. He said, I'm going to send you a, a pack of that so you can get it greater, do whatever you want to do with it because my collection's all greater. So he sent me two packs of 89.90 OPG. Now, this is not an expensive pack of cards. He sent it to me. It was very nice. I'm glad he did. And I thought, you know what? He sent me two. And this one, I looked at it. This one seems to have a bit of a wrinkle in the wrapper. So I'll keep the other one for my collection. But I'm going to open this. And I'm going to eat the gum live on. <laughs> Let's open up. Maybe we'll get a Joe Sackick or a Theo Fleury or a Gary Roberts rookie card here. That and gum was made for the ages. There's the wrapper. <clears throat> there's the gum. Stuck to the card. Stuck to the card, okay? Oh. I mean, it's got cards oh. stuck to it still. So I'm not going to eat that piece. And that card is, but let's eat just, it. <laughs> it's still got a bit of chew on it. Actually has a little bit of chew to it still. It's not just crumbling in my mouth. All right, let's see what we got. Adam Oates. Yeah. Miko McKella. Uh. Andy Brickley. Yeah. Gary Nyland, Mario Gosselin, Mike Vernon, and a team card, the Canucks. All right. <laughs> and that gum, that gum is now gone from my mouth, swallowed and done. <laughs> I don't get too sick from that. All right, let's see. A couple more comments come in. Don't eat the gum. Here's a good question for you, Todd. From Scott, what do you think of Ice 99 rookies? How do they I, rank? I, oh. How do they rank? And, and I, actually, this is a great question, Scott. I wish we thought of this earlier, but I'm glad you came up with it. Rank for us, Todd, the best rookie cards in hockey between the Cup, Ice, Ultimate, SB Game Used. And that's a tougher one because that's a newer thing where they've been doing with the rookies. But going back to the – let's do 05, 06. Okay. Okay. What, what are the um, – What's your what are your favorites in order? I, I you know I do like ice and I do have a number of ice rookies out of ninety nine. Uh, I like to get them graded. They typically grade really well, so uh, that's the nice thing about ice is that they usually come out of the pack in great shape, and you can go and get a nine five or a ten. Uh, so that that you know I do I do like ice. It's not something I've ever made a huge effort to collect the whole set every year. But that being said, I think they do rank in sort of the top rookie cards released every year. And if I were to say 
uh, going back, it's it's definitely the cup. Uh, I, I I tend to lean towards the ultimate rookies out of 99 because they're autographed and they're hand autographed. So the yeah. player has held that card at one point, uh, which is very cool. Ice comes a very close third. Um, and so they're great car. And now that being said, ice has changed over the years. In 05, 06, the Ovi and, and uh, Crosby rookie cards that were in ice were next to impossible to find. I mean, they're some of the, they're literally two of the hardest cards that um, you can find for those players. And that particular year, uh, the print run compared to how long or how many actual boxes that they released. Man, I remember cracking cases of cases of ice and not getting one of those rookies out of 99. So I like them. I think they're very valuable. I think they're great cards. Um, nothing wrong with them. I think they're probably a, a close third. I, I think the ultimate rookies, only because they have the hand autograph, rank a little bit ahead. You know, I agree. I think that I think that the reason why ice rookies are so valuable is simply there's a lot of equity attached to that brand. Is Really, the brand equity is huge on that. Whereas with ultimate little bit of less brand equity in the collector's mentality. Plus it kind of just takes a second fiddle to the cup, whereas ice is looked at completely separate. And um, I think that's why you've seen where, where while you value the, the, um, the ultimate hire because of the autograph, I think the hobby in general sees the ice is worth more and that could change over time. Things do sometimes change over time. That, that could definitely happen. Let's see what else. <laughs> this is funny. Um, Sorry, guys. Where did that go? There's a lot of lots of comments coming through here. Um, Andy said, "Don't eat the gum." I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> well, too late. Eaten and swallowed. Um, yeah, Richard seconds it. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, here's a. You know, Brian makes the comment. Uh, too much filler and ice. Yeah, that's part of why they're just so hard to find those ice cards out of '99, right? I mean, yeah. back in 0506 and. I think even to this day, it's they're really hard to find. Although I think nowadays they make more than five or six of them out of '99. Can you do you know about that at all? Yeah, there's probably a dozen. Uh, you're right. The print run of the '99s is is greater, um, and I agree. The hobby does like the ice cards better than the ultimate. So yeah, and that's always been always been the case. Yeah. So Chris's comment here: ultimate feels like a budget cup. So I think that speaks to what I was saying before. Maybe why ice is valued. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Roddy, ice ice out of a ninety nine were one in ten cases or something crazy like that. And look what he pulled in 0506. He pulled U 2s favorite player Gilbert Brule. You know what? That card was hot for a long time. He was supposed to be the next big thing, and uh, that was a big card. That's a nice card. And you know what? That one in ten cases. That's ridiculous. <clears throat> that's a tough pull. Do you, so I don't know if you caught the reference I made. U 2s Bono's favorite hockey player, Gilbert Brule. Did you ever hear that story? It's a great story. You can tell it if you want. Yeah. So this goes back a few years ago. Gilbert Brule was playing for the Edmonton Oilers. And uh, I guess he was driving through Stanley Park. Uh, was it? No, it was in Vancouver. I think it happened. He's driving Vancouver. Through, yeah. He's driving through Stanley Park in Vancouver and he picks up a hitchhiker. And that hitchhiker happened to be Bono from U2, who just happened to be there playing a concert and uh, needed a ride somewhere. So, he, so Gilbert Brule picked him up and then Bono right. put it out on his Twitter or something that uh, my favorite player is Gilbert Brule. That was that was a pretty funny thing. I don't know if anyone else remembers that, but I sure do. I think it was on the way to Whistler. His car had oh. broken down. 
on the way to Whistler, fair, yeah. Well, I don't know why Bono has a car that breaks down, but hey, I guess it could happen to even the best of us. Yeah, yeah Brian, Brian Palmer, if I survive eating that gum, you're looking forward to the next show. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> Same here. Same here. I hope I'm around for the, for the next show. All right, guys, we are approaching an hour 50 minutes. This has been, Todd, man, it's been a really great chat. I mean, we, we chat regularly anyway, um, so it's just nice to do it. And, you know, I've often said to you, we, guys, Todd and I have had conversations over the years, and I've often thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could, like, share what we're saying? Because we, I thought we had some good insights, and it would have been cool to share them. And now with what's going on in the world today and with the technology, we're able to do that. So I really want to just give you a big thank you for joining me, man. It's been awesome. Guys out there watching, thanks. I can see we've had more viewers on this episode number four than ever than any show I've had so far. So thanks a lot. I hope it keeps growing. Please do subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow me on Instagram at jaylee underscore cards. Love to have you do that. I'll follow you back. Um, anyone has any final comments? I'm not seeing much more new. If I missed any guys, I really apologize. Sometimes it's hard to see them all and some I could just miss. It's not that I'm ignoring you or skipping over. I just don't see them. So I do apologize for that. And um, yeah, guys, we'll be back. I'll be back. So today's uh, Saturday. I'll be back on Wednesday. Again, every Wednesday, every Saturday, I got some really amazing guests lined up. You're going to be, you're going to want to tune in. Um, some of them are mysteries, some I'm giving away. I'm telling you who they are up front, but a couple I'm going to wait to announce. And um, so please come back and we'll see you all then. Todd, we get to sign off? Absolutely. Hey, this has been a blast. Thank you very much, Jeremy. And anyone that took the time to actually listen to us, I know that you love this hobby like we do. So, uh, uh, you know, thank you very much. Yeah, guys. Thanks again, everybody. We will see you all again on Wednesday. Have a great night, people.